0: Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Project MedTech. I am the founder of Project MedTech, Dwayne Mancini. If you need anything from us or would like to suggest a future guest, you can email us at info at projectmedtech.com. If you enjoy this podcast, please subscribe and leave a review, and you can always visit our website, www.projectmedtech.com, or follow us on LinkedIn. This is another episode of Project MedTech's series, MedTech Money. This is a special series by Project MedTech where we have partnered with Mr. MedTech himself, Giovanni Loricella, in a series of podcast episodes focusing on money in the MedTech space. Giovanni's guest today is Sasha Alilovich from SHS. In this episode, Giovanni and Sasha discuss how he became the managing partner at SHS, where they focus from a stage of company and geographical area, the hard line of having revenue before they invest, the major difference of going public in the U.S. versus Europe for later stage companies, the effect of EUMDR on the region and innovation, their due diligence process, and more. So without further ado, Giovanni's discussion with Sasha Alilovich.
1: Medical innovation starts with medical discussion. What comes next with Project MedTech. Sasha, thank you very much for being with us today. This is MedTech Money, the podcast series powered by Project MedTech and sponsored by Lifeblood Capital. And I'm very much so looking forward to this podcast because there's quite a unique aspect about this one that I'm looking forward to diving into. And so before that, the reason why we're here is I've talked to thousands of MedTech entrepreneurs and investors around the world. And I've discovered that there's really no silver bullet or specific formula of how to either raise or even invest capital in med tech. And so my goal here is I wanted to extract insights and stories from entrepreneurs, investment bankers, attorneys, and investors like yourself so that we can help those who can benefit from this information and also for those generations of entrepreneurs and investors that will be coming our way. So what I imagine here is the audience is a mixture of experts and novices, so people who have been there and done that before, and a lot of aspiring entrepreneurs and investors. However, I wanted to extract your stories, your insights, your advice, so that we can share with what I imagine that first-time founder or CEO or even investor that has no clue on what lies ahead of them in this journey of raising or even investing capital. So I thought the best place to start is by learning from experienced professionals like yourself. The exciting piece about this podcast and the reason why you and I are here today is, as I mentioned, talked to a lot of investors before. Typically speaking, at least from my experience, the ones that I've talked to in Europe versus where you're based, and we'll get into it, um, are either earlier stage or maybe mid-stage. But the uniqueness here is we're going to demystify this whole idea of private equity or growth stage capital within Europe, uh, which is quite unique. So I wanna get into that. Before we do, three open-ended questions that I wanted to ask you. My first one is, do you believe that people and money are the lifeblood of a med tech startup? Why or why not? Or is there anything else that I'm missing?
2: Well, first of all, thanks thanks for the invitation, Giovanni. Uh, looking, forward to looking forward to the conversation and, and share some insights with you. Um, so I would say you're absolutely spot on. I mean the most important thing for every investor is looking at um, is definitely uh, the people slash the team you're investing into. Um, uh, depending on the stage, on the stage of the company you invest into, obviously the, the team is even more important in the early stages than it becomes the more mature a company gets. Um, and typically also in, in the early stages, we're talking more about a single person, founder, maybe founding team of two or three people who are uh, crucial for the business. Later on, you're talking more about also second layer management on top of the first layer management and so on. Um, so that's one thing, obviously. And money is basically the, uh, well, the gas that make, uh, makes everything drive. Without, without money, you can't, you can't do much, especially not in tech. Uh, because everything is costly from um, developing a prototype to clinical trials to um, building up your sales organization, uh, scaling to the US and/or China. So yeah, so the money is also super crucial. But there is also one more thing I would say, which is probably um, everything that has to do with uh, a specific well market need um, and. That actually um, taken seriously as really being an issue, a challenge for many from people you, you, who are your customers and your stakeholders. So who finally decide upon, uh, finally decide upon um, if, if your products are going to be successful or not. So I would say the three things you cannot really separate that much uh, because uh, having only two in the pot and the mixture uh, yeah, will not create a successful company. But the three of them uh, all being good should become a success.
1: And having been a successful med tech, life science, digital health investor, if you knew what you know now about being a med tech investor, would you do it all over again? Why or why not? Or what would you do differently?
2: Yeah, I mean, for, for me and us, uh, I would say what, well, we would do a lot of the things all over again. We like the industry very much um, that we invest into. It's not only uh, generating a return to investors, but also you're obviously helping patients and their families throughout the world um, by by helping to get innovative products to the market and into use again, worldwide ideally. What we would do differently though, um, is we have started off as a typical venture capitalist uh, investing into early stage companies and have done so for, for some funds. And what we, at least us, um, figured is that those life cycles um, to get those products to a mature stage, to then get acquirers interested in different cycles of the economy uh, in the world is something that, that we rather nowadays tend to avoid a bit in terms of investing at a later stage. Um, But also the companies lack a lot of capital and expertise, meaning in the scale up phase when they have a product that came to the market that is generating first traction or even significant revenues, seven or eight digits, and then helping those companies to really scale on a global basis. That is where we come into play, uh, where we invest. uh, And that is something that that we have changed over time, uh, where we we change from being a venture capitalist to a growth investor
1: slash PE investor. And then finally, we're going to reference this throughout the rest of the podcast as SHS, and I need your help here. But what does the name of your company mean? Yeah, it's
2: even, it's even way more complicated than SHS. It's, the German full name is uh, SHS, Gesellschaft für Beteiligungsmanagement, MBH, and MBH stands for Mitbeschränkter Haftung. So it's <laughs> one of those German expressions you can probably look up at the, at the comedian shows. Um, which finally is probably better abbreviated with SHS capital. And SHS is quite simple. SHS stands for the first letters of the last names of the three founders who about 25 years ago, and more than 25 years ago actually, founded SHS. Um, and uh, yeah, three, three McKinsey people who thought um, that's probably the, be- the best way to, to make us remember, call it SHS Gesellschaft für Get- Beteiligungsmanagement in BH.
1: There we go. For all those listening. And last but not least, <laughs> the man behind the voice, Sasha Alelovich, please let us know who you are, where you come from, and then how did you end up becoming, throughout all these years, the general partner, general manager of SHS?
2: Yeah, certainly. I mean, um, well, um, I'll just start. I mean, I, I was uh, born and raised in Germany. I uh, I'm uh, married, have uh, two small kids, um, and uh, started off uh, being actually a venture capitalist, a crossover investor at the time, at the, uh, at the wild uh, 2000s, where, which m- some might remember. There are loads and loads of tech IPOs at the time, and I helped companies with investments and then uh, scaling up and then doing their IPOs, meaning their public history, uh, stock listings, either in Europe or in the US. Um, and then afterwards founded my own corporate finance boutique trying to help those tech companies. Then basically those um, tech markets imploded um, and I had to look for a regular job, uh, joined Siemens, um, more serious company uh, from four people to 400,000 colleagues. um, um, And then after a while figured that I would rather like to to, um, uh, add value in the healthcare lifestyle sector, joined Morphosis, which is one of Germany's premier private uh, sorry, biotech firm, again listed in, in Germany and in the US in the meantime, uh, ran the corporate finance and corporate development department and then joined SHS four years ago. Uh, and SHS briefly on us, I mean, we are 100% focused on healthcare and life sciences, um, including to a very large extent medtech, but also diagnostics, life science, supply companies, um, digital health, um, specialty pharma and and, and other fields in in healthcare.
1: So let's dig further on that, because that was my next question on just really understanding what SHS is. So if you do focus on this later stage, growth stage, potential PE aspect of healthcare and life sciences within Europe, Walk us through that. I mean, is there minimums in terms of obviously regulatory approval of some sort? They have to be scaled up of, what is it, 5, 10, 15 million euro a year in sales. Talk us about like, what is the typical profile of company that you're working with or investing in just so we get a context of where they are on the spectrum of growth?
2: Yeah, in general, um, that's a fair question. I mean, in general, I would say it's it's still a bit of a blurry line. I mean, the very hard line um, is, we want to see revenues from the um, from the lead product in their local markets. It doesn't necessarily have to have an uh, have to have an, uh, an approval, CE label, I don't know what FDA approval or whatever. Um, it can also be something that applies the regulated piece of the industry, like for example a CDMO, um, for example, customized research antibody um, uh, supplier and the likes. Um, but we want to see revenues. We want to see a significant growth potential. The revenues are typically when we invest in the seven-digit or lo- low eight-digit range, um, maybe up to 30 million euros or so. Um, and then we want to see global potential for those companies. And then we help scale them up. Um, scaling up, meaning uh, getting their, their products approved or um, um, well also uh, produced and, and marketed in the US and typically also very often China, uh, and obviously also expand significantly in Europe. And that's where we, where we add value by providing the capital, but also by, by um, adding our networks and some, some of the tools from our toolbox from more than 60 investments in the space.
1: And when we talk about the, and let me know how SHS works, is it an evergreen fund? Is it a 200 million euro fund? Um, Do you guys have a 10-year horizon like a traditional VC would? Um, What is the typical size of check that you would invest into a company, maybe a minimum or even a maximum, or if you have reserves for over a company's lifestyle cycle, rather? Um, Talk about that. So
2: so we have a very typical typical, um, uh, PE or VC fund when it comes to the term. So it's a 10-year term, uh, extension potential uh, of another two years, uh, five-year investment period, uh, five-year harvesting period, um, and uh, yeah, the last fund, uh, fund five, which we're currently investing out of uh, is 135 uh, million euro, 150 US. Roughly um, the typical check size over the lifetime of, uh, of the of, of, of investment period of our portfolio companies is between eight and 12 million euros. We can start with as little as maybe 5 million. Uh, at the lower end uh, and go uh, as high up as probably 20, maybe 25 million euros. Um, and then obviously we can, we can write definitely way bigger uh, check sizes with our LPs, so our investors uh, or syndicate members. Um, we are trying to build r- useful syndicates for those portfolio companies, whatever whatever that finally means, depending very much on those specificities of the, of the portfolio companies. But I mean that's that's roughly what we are investing. And when it comes to um, when it comes to um, percentages, maybe ownership, we can start typically as low as fifteen or twenty percent, um, and go up as high as hundred percent. So uh, not only majority, but, but even owning the whole the whole business. Um, what's important for us is we always would require a board seat because we really want to. Um, uh, help the company somewhat actively, hands off, but with strategic reasoning, and uh, and as a sparing partner. So we want a board seat um, to enable that and facilitate that. And then obviously, if we are in a minority position, strong minority rights um, backing those.
1: And we talked about this earlier, but typically speaking, SHS focuses within the DAC region, which is that Germany, Austria, Switzerland region typically, once again, German speaking, is there a a reason for that? Is there an angle for that? Why so very focused? I mean, I've talked to VC firms that are European focused, maybe global focused, but that's regional within as a VC firm. Why? Yeah, first of all, I mean, you're absolutely right. I mean, especially historically, we've been focused very
2: much on the Dach region, Uh, Dach region being by far the biggest uh, healthcare unified market um, in Europe um, at at a a large distance to the next one. I would say, Uh, and there is very limited in our view, direct competition from other financial investors in that very specific space where we are at. There is a number of VC companies, but these are rather, let's say, investing into companies than that we invest to at a later stage. and then there is also some investors, mid-market uh, PE firms who either are dedicated to a healthcare life science or uh, take a strong interest in that, but rather have that as a, uh, as a well, use a team internally to compete against, I don't know, a tech investment or against um, other regular industries, so to speak. Um, but in the size we're at and. What we are looking for, there's extremely limited um, competition in the dark region, and that's why we focus on this region first. Uh, with the current fund, we expanded those. um this focus though to to all beer drinking countries on the continent, basically, <laughs> uh, which which means which means Nordics and and Benelux especially. Um, and we think well, the reason why, especially those regions, is, is precisely the same. I mean, there is very limited number of financial investors in the field who are as focused as us on the growth aspects of rather small in comparison, uh, healthcare companies who want to grow within Europe and then also to the U.S. and in China.
1: So let's get into the, the why there, because once again, going back to speaking with numerous VCs who maybe do seed rounds or Series A, potentially Series B, et cetera, to be a growth stage slash private equity firm in Europe and focused in that those beer drinking countries like you were mentioning, um, that's unique. I mean, why isn't there more competition? Why is the ability to be that late stage as an investor so unique within Europe especially? Tell us about that why yeah, I would say I would say um,
2: I mean, it's definitely true for the German-speaking countries, again, uh, that there is very limited number of GPs or, or uh, private equity firms out there who do what we do. Um, that's not so true for France, which I've seen um, a number of, of new players evolving recently. Um, it's also not true for the UK. We also see a number of those players, but in otherwise, again, DACH region, not really many. And then also even Benelux and Nordics, very limited amount of players there. Why is that? I think in general, again, uh, as always uh, in, in that specific industry, um, Europe is, is lagging behind the U.S. And um, Whereas the U.S. Uh, was leading the way and paving the way in terms of, uh, first of all, way more capital and venture capital in general. Uh, then those venture capitalists often um, evolved into becoming later, later on growth capital providers. Uh, and then being that sector specific on healthcare, that is something rather recent that we see obviously way more in the US, probably 10 times as much capital as, as in Europe, um, if, if at all, if, if maybe possibly more. Um, and that's probably one of the reasons. I mean, you'll see some... Some newcomers also in the German-speaking countries, I think, uh, going forward who are also tackling the, 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 same, the same segment, so to speak, in the life cycle of companies. But again, currently, yeah, we're just lagging behind the U.S. with our specialized industry-specific growth funds.
1: And, and you were alluding to some of it, and that was my next question, so maybe we can flush out a little bit more. But what do you see, and you can speak to either late-stage growth and P.E., in isolation, or you can speak to just venture in general, but the, the economics behind it, what are the major differences that you're seeing or understanding between investments in med tech or life science within Europe versus the United States? Like, Paint that picture of why they're so different. I mean, I know that you mentioned there's a lot more capital over in the United States, so we can reiterate that, but is, is it is it a cultural thing? Is it how the money flows? Is it the smaller populations? What What is it?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think there's there's a number of different factors uh, that all come together somehow. I mean, um, one of them being you obviously have one single healthcare market unified in the states, which is enormously big, um, whereas um, you have um, uh, well the the fragmented European market, all different healthcare systems. After all, you have to take care of all the different reimbursement. Methodologies, getting a code on each and every uh, single um, region, which is very, very cumbersome. That's that's one of the issues definitely in the European market. Um, then in the US, um, I would say you have another exit channel, which basically Europe you you basically don't have, uh, only to a very, very limited extent, which is obviously uh, a stock listing, um, especially nowadays. Um, not only biotech companies do IPO a lot in the U.S., but also medtech companies have a really have had a good run uh, on, the, on the capital markets uh, recently in the U.S. You see very, that only to a very, very limited extent in, in Europe, and this is obviously something that European investors then lack as an exit channel. Um, yeah, and then last but not least, I would say um, one more thing is that in the U.S., the most acquisitive medtech conglomerates are rather US-based, and they're definitely also always, they always want to see that an acquisition target has a US approval, which is a natural way forward for a US company to look for first, whereas typically a European company typically looks at a European approval first, and then has to Still invest into the yes to approval to get on the on the roadmap of, of uh, typical acquirers in the field, which is something where we can help with. But yeah, I mean, uh, if, if that takes longer, needs more investment and so on, that's something that also, um, yeah, does not play into the cards of having a very active um, uh, medtech investment
1: team in, in Europe these days in comparison. So you brought up a, a few points. Um, the going public or the options of going public for these later stage companies in Europe versus United States i mean we're going through this phase and period right now we're seeing a lot of ipos right now at least here in the united states so talk about that i mean are the public markets drastically different in europe versus the united states is it really is it ever an option for european companies that could satiate that level of, whether it's commercialization or milestones, whatever it may be, to go public on the U.S. markets. I'm asking for all those listening, including myself, what is the major differences for these later stage companies to have the option of going public, whether it's in Europe or the U.S., and what's the downsides of either one? I would say...
2: um... Obviously, there's, there's also the possibility for European companies um, to, to also do an IPO in the U.S., but they need to be sizable. Um, they, need to be, they need to exceed a certain uh, threshold in terms of um, market capitalization, meaning um, valuation, uh, and otherwise they are still under the radar and won't see liquidity much. Um, then um, there are so many different opportunities for U.S. investor versus um, well, if, if they're looking at, at stock listed medtech companies, there's a difference of uh, there's so many opportunities for a US investor to invest into med tech companies that a company that is not in the same um, legislation, uh, region, time zone and so on is a bit more challenging to look at and understand in comparison to a local one. Um, so you would typically expect a tiny discount for a European company unless you have something very specific you bring along. So it is a bit more challenging for a European company to do a listing in the U.S. And you always need a U.S. story as well, because that is what U.S. investors invest into is, again, expanding, let's say, um, the U.S. as a market for the products of the European company. They need to be known in the U.S. um, Investors speak to U.S. KOLs and so on. Looking at the stock markets, why are they so different? That's, again, the fragmented piece. Uh, of Europe, you have a number of different uh, stock exchanges. Some of them working reasonably well, considering uh, considering uh, how fragmented these markets are in comparison to the U.S. Uh, but still, um, it's more used as a as a capital raising exercise than an exit exercise. Typically, uh, I'm talking about Euronext, talking about the Nordics, um Those all are not necessarily um, the the exchanges that the large medtech companies go to, aspire to go to. It's typically uh, a US listing they're looking to uh, uh, looking forward to. Um, and then those stock exchanges are also a bit local. So again, Nestec Nordics, it's, I don't think that any company outside of the Nordics has ever done an IPO on Nestec Nordics. Um, it was a medtech company um, yet, at least. A bit similar with a, with a Swiss stock exchange, it would be weird for, I don't know, a Spanish company to go to a Swiss stock exchange or a Swiss company to go to a Spanish stock exchange. So you basically always have to look at your local stock exchange and there is a limited number of knowledgeable investors uh, who then understand that regulated innovative products. Um, and that's obviously really different in the States.
1: You mentioned something interesting that the difference is If you go public on the US market, for example, you call that an exit, but typically speaking, if you go public in one of these local markets in Europe or the Nordics, um, it's a capital raising event. Is there really that black and white of a difference? Like, If I'm a Spanish company that wants to go public on the Spanish stock exchange, I'm just considering that, hey, I need extra money, so I'm just going to get money and raise capital, but it's not necessarily an exit where if I'm a U.S. company and I go public on the New York Stock Exchange and all of a sudden that's considered an exit. I mean, is it that black and white? It's not that black and white, but it's um, if you're looking at the uh, liquidity uh, companies
2: have uh, who have IPO'd at Nest Technologies or Euronext um, or German Stock Exchange unless they are above, let's say, a couple of hundred millions of market cap, uh, they're really not trading that, that significantly because um, in Europe, we lack these, um, well, um, funds that, that's tailor to those, that piece of the market. Um, uh, you, have, you have a lot of liquidity as soon as you reach maybe a threshold of a couple of hundred million, maybe 500 million euro of market cap, and you have to get there, obviously. That's a bit of a different, because also then generalists get interested. Um, that's a different thing uh, in the US, um, where where you have basically also smaller funds uh, looking for for doing some stock picking, uh, who understand the lifestyle, healthcare, and medtech arena really well, um, and and then are trying to actually get into those stocks early before they really take off. Um, and that is where your exit comes into. Um, so you can do block trades uh, in the US way easier in my understanding than you can on European stock exchanges most of the time. So yes, I mean, that's one thing I would actually caution every every um, CEO or shareholder of, of a company in Europe. Uh, doing an IPO is not necessarily an
1: exit treaty. That's a fascinating point. I want to go back to the Point that you said about the acquirers, typically speaking, being in the United States, and they require this, or once again, typically require this FDA approval. Um, I've I've talked to other companies who have raised money out of China, also investment bankers in China, and there's been this advice where it's like keep your eyes open because yes, we all know there's this limited factor of acquirers like the Medtronic's, the Boston Scientific's, the Johnson and Johnson's, and when you compare these potential acquirers in medtech against potential acquirers in biopharma for example which has a plethora of them a lot of them there's that major difference but we've been hearing that don't be so only focused on these big acquirers in the west or even specifically in the in the united states there's also acquirers in china so with you being late stage focused when you're investing in a company that has three, five, possibly seven years to exit um, with an acquirer. Do you guys also keep that in mind in terms of your strategy? Are you looking at the the few options of acquirers in the United States as well as those in China? That's one question. The second layered question is, why aren't we seeing more potential med tech acquirers in Europe? Why don't they exist? I know it's a, a, a multi-lettered question, but I'll let you run. Yeah, maybe, maybe for the first one. I mean, yes, we absolutely uh, are
2: very much aware of the of the limited number of um, medtech strategics uh, based in the US, um, and and that obviously is also a bit of a concern for us. And this maybe also one of the answers why medtech is not uh, taking off um, as much as as let's say biopharma or biotechnology um, uh, took off. Um, in terms of also funding sizes, because I mean, finally, you need to get an exit as an investor, and there, as I said, there's multiple um, venues, uh, avenues for um, for life science uh, biopharma investor in comparison to a tech investor. So we are looking at um, the Chinese um, collaboration partners and acquirers. Um, that's getting more important every day. Um, and in comparison to maybe five or even 10 years ago, these acquirers become more and more, let's say, um, uh, serious to us as an alternative acquirer. They're getting more and more serious these days than they used to uh, in the past. So I would say from our portfolio companies, the sales processes we are in, uh, so exit processes we are in, I would say at least in half of them, a Chinese acquirer. Um, so they are, um, so these, these days, Probably in half of the exit processes, a Chinese a Chinese um, interested party is is amongst the top three parties um, looking at looking at at our assets. Um, that is definitely a new development, and we consider this to become more and more relevant going forward. Um, certainly, we do. Um, and while maybe ten years ago or five years ago, even um, many Chinese acquirers have not been let's say serial acquirers and didn't know precisely. How to how to act or uh, a different um, let's say a different culture in how they actually um, approached uh, potential targets and processes and uh, how how to how to execute them and also in terms of um, uh, speed of execution and how to deploy uh, how to transfer the capital over that has been probably uh, solved more and more in the in the recent years and we expect it very much to continue um, so that Chinese acquirers become as relevant as U.S. acquirers going forward. Um, so that's, that's one answer to your question. And we actually have one person within our team um, who dedicates roughly half of his time to speaking to the serial acquirers from the U.S., but also to the Chinese acquirers. Um, so we know, we know what these are looking for. They know about our portfolio companies and how they develop. And that's a, a great way of building trust over time for those acquirers as well. So that was a long-winded question. A bit to, to, the, to the one uh, uh, answer to the one question, um, and the other one: Why don't we have so many European acquirers? Well, I wouldn't underplay European acquirers either. I mean, we, you do have them, but uh, many of those European um, medtech conglomerates are, are private companies. Have been run are very traditionally run um, in a in a way that they have developed many things organically. Um, inside the organizations and have only to a limited extent um, acquired innovation. That's different these days for the large conglomerates based in the states who are stock listed and have to focus more, let's say, on the uh, on, on on typical, typical uh, metrics that, um, that that fund investors look at, EPS or what have you. Um, and and that's already different for for private companies who can have maybe more time to develop something internally and are therefore just less used to acquire innovation, maybe even at high prices externally.
1: So even though there's a few within Europe, the major ones, as you mentioned, are in the United States and also this new development, which is over in China. For all those listening to make a a map in their head and have some very black and white information to deal with at dinner time when they're having this conversation with somebody else, are there any other markets in the world that have potential acquirers? I mean, is there acquirers in Australia? Is there acquirers in India? Are there acquirers in Russia, Canada? I mean, when you're looking at your product portfolios, is it as simple as saying, yeah, there might be someone in Europe, but typically at this point, based on our business, the acquirers are coming from the United States or China?
2: yeah I would say those are the three three regions i mean europe not not to forget them obviously i mean uh, we, we sell probably um, at least a third of our portfolio companies um, also to european um, European um, strategic acquirers um, uh, what what has next to u s and and China as a more recent phenomenon of, of um, appearing um, and evolving as, as acquirers is not the regions you mentioned necessarily not, at least not not as visible to us um, uh, today, but what definitely we have, and that that is also a very recent ev- uh, development, is those mid-market PE funds um, who are looking to buy quickly or uh, fast-growing companies um, in the regulated markets that are not necessarily that much affected by economic cycles. Um, and so on, and want to get more exposure in that. And as soon as you um, are close to a certain threshold, let's say 10 million euros of EBITDA, those assets get really, really, really interesting for for also mid-market sector agnostic GPs, so financial sponsors. And that is actually a very large chunk of the bidders in our processes these days.
1: So, not necessarily a country, but an actual style of business. So, you have the acquirers in the United States. You have the acquirers in China, Europe, like you mentioned, a third, and then also mid-market private equity organizations that can come in and buy your assets.
2: Yeah, but they are typically then, then I mean, they're typically
1: operating out of their European offices. So we wouldn't we wouldn't reach
2: out to typically a US-based or Chinese-based um, um, a mid-market PE funds. They typically like to have uh, some uh, some well c- local close closeness, proximity to, to those assets.
0: Okay.
1: Um, I want to switch over and ask an off, well, not off topic, but just a sidebar question. The, you mentioned with Europe, US acquirers having a focus on FDA approval and then typically speaking, the companies in Europe will go after CE mark or European approval. The latest and greatest update in Europe is this implementation a few months back of the European medical device regulations. And I've asked this question to the earlier stage investors and I get mixed answers. Some say it has affected deal flow. Others say it really hasn't affected deal flow because R&D is still occurring. Um, so they, they still have these opportunities to invest in earlier stage companies because the R&D is taking place and the innovation is still taking place in Europe where maybe the European medical device regulation implementation hasn't affected them yet. But typically speaking, we're seeing a lot of earlier stage companies now look to the FDA versus CE mark as they used to. Being a later stage investor where commercialization comes in, regulatory approval comes in, typically speaking, let's just say, has the European Medical Device Regulation implementation, the EU MDRs, has that affected your business or deal flow in any way? Yeah, I would say. I
2: mean, it hasn't necessarily affected the deal flow as such, um, because I would say that that some some potential deals um, have been well disappeared basically, but have been replaced by more like medium-sized companies who also fall on the MDR um, and and need to reclassify their their devices and so on, and therefore need um, external capital. So I would say, um, well. We basically have, have shifted um, from, from those earlier investments to later stage investments, and that was probably also uh, supported basically by the NDR uh, in terms of we're getting more deals so from later stage companies who have their products on the market but need to reclassify them again. Um, or classify them again under MDR um, and need therefore some support on, on the capital investment side, but also on maybe adding adding stuff um, and, and knowledge to how, how to do that. Um, but yes, I would definitely say it gets, or it got more challenging for earlier stage companies to get to the market with their product because you have to implement all the different processes, um, uh, documentations, measurements, which... And that to a large extent than beforehand that adds costs and complexity, which yeah, increases the, uh, the volume you need to invest before getting those, those products to approval, which is not really helping the European innovativeness of the industry, I would say.
1: I want to go back to when you talk about investing and, and being able to invest even more with either your LPs or syndicating. When you say that SHS is unique within itself, one of a few players at that stage of company with that industry focus within Europe, is syndication challenging? I mean, if, if when you syndicate, are you are you having partners and networks in China, in India, in UK, in the United States? Like, where are you syndicating from? When you're so unique in that aspect of, if there's only a, a handful of some. Companies like yours within Europe, or even specifically within the DAC region, or or even if you're alone in the DOC region, how are you syndicating? How do you build that network of others who can jump in at the level that you can?
2: Yeah, I would say that the answer is twofold, probably. I mean, first of all, um, we we can always syndicate with dedicated healthcare specialists, but just outside of outside of Germany or DAC region, we we look then at at um, uh, investors who, who are based in, in France, UK, Menelux or even the US uh, when we syndicate. Uh, they like very much that we are obviously very, very close to the to the, um, the Dach based companies or maybe beer drinking countries on the continent uh, uh, companies. Um, and that is where we have the relationships and networks too. So that's what we bring to the table on top of um, on top of our sector expertise, and they help us then expand those companies into the regions where they are based and have the best networks too. So that's one possibility how to how to syndicate. Um, and the other possibility to syndicate is with uh, sector agnostic uh, investors who who would like to um, expand in that piece of the market, meaning into healthcare companies. Um, uh, and and that is that is there's a strong trend towards this that either we get invited by those um, sector agnostic investors um, or we invite let's say befriended uh, private equity firms when we see a deal that is maybe above our size uh, but where we think we could partner up with. So then we can go for German speaking let's say DACH region based mid market PEs and and uh, collaborate with them. And we will really provide the the sector expertise and they provide capital and some other specifics maybe on how to scale up in general or how to digitalize or how to improve the processes or how to or what have you. Yeah,
1: I don't know if this is a rhetorical question or not, because obviously you're in business and, and you do a lot of deal flow. But... Are there enough companies at this later stage within Europe that are commercializing within this very specific industry sector? I mean, we know that there's a lot happening in the United States. We hear a lot about happening in China. But when you talk about later stage, fully commercial, European-based organizations, multi-product, whatever it may be, millions in revenue generation, et cetera, is there, just shed some light on that for those who are listening right now. I mean, how healthy, how big is this market? I hear of a lot of innovation coming out of Europe, but it's, it's lesser so, at least in my mind, for later stage, multi-million annual revenue generating companies in Europe. How big is that market?
2: Yeah, I would say, I mean, I can, I can answer best probably by, by looking at our deal flow. Our deal flow is um, so Again, we, historically, we are focused on the DAC region and we have recently expanded into Nordics and, and Benelux. Um, we see way more than a thousand opportunities uh, on an annual basis. Uh, roughly half of them qualify according to what I've just um, uh, laid out, meaning uh, significant revenues, uh, seven digit plus revenues, um, and falling into our core sub segments of healthcare and life science. So, yeah, we, we alone see more than. I would say 500, maybe more wow. opportunities a year. Uh, and that is without very strong marketing in Nordics than it looks anywhere else in Europe. Um, because typically we rather like to get invited by local investors um, who, who say that they actually lack that type of investor in their region. So we don't market it strongly. I, I would say if we would go out and market that, that would even increase. So yeah, I would say there's enough. Uh, enough deal flow.
1: And then raising a fund for your style of organization, right? So not only are you investing in companies who are raising capital, but you as the managing partner of SHS have to go out and raise your own fund to be able to invest from your LPs, your limited partners. Is there cultural nuances? Is it the same style of company for you in the United States, for example, a private equity slash growth stage venture capital company who has to go out and raise capital. Are there any differences? Like, is it harder to raise that type of LP fund in Europe versus the United States? Is there a conservative cultural um, aspect to it that may be more challenging? Is it the same? And is it easy to raise funds for a company like yours? Talk about actually SHS having to raise funds in that process.
2: Yeah, I mean, it would be easy to, to just say it's, it's way easier in the U.S. to get everything done than it is in Europe. That's probably, I mean, uh, true to some extent and probably vice versa, not true to some extent because, I mean, obviously, again, being the only ones of our type in the DACH region also uh, makes us interesting for, for some, for some uh, LPs, our investors, um, because they're precisely looking for that, um, looking to deploy capital in the largest um, largest healthcare market in Europe. Uh, just below the sizes uh, of investments where we typically used are source using auctions. I mean, 80% of our investments come from proprietary sources. And that is something that, that makes us, uh, let's say, also very interesting for our investors. And when we sell our portfolio companies, we sell in auctions because they then expanded to double or triple the size than, uh, at the time when we invested. So that's, that's, I think, an interesting positioning for many of our investors. And also what, what, what also is, is, let's say, more challenging uh, in the U.S. is because it's way more mature in the U.S., you will find for every, let's say, sub-segment within those industry-specific uh, private equity firms, at least two, three, four, five companies covering that specific piece of the market. So you have way more choices in the U.S. than you have in, in Europe. On the other hand, obviously yes. I mean, we are um, investing into growth, into uh, in, uh, in an industry, in a sorry, an industry specialist, and then not buyouts, straight buyouts, only cash flow positive companies, but also cash flow negative companies and also minorities, which does not necessarily always help us for the LP to put us either in the right um, uh, buckets. Or they simply um, say, well, I mean, it's difficult for us to assess how you value companies. So, yeah, we rather stick to our eight times EBITDA cash flow positive majority uh, ownership um, uh, typical mid market um, investors. So, yeah, I, I, it's hard for me to tell, uh, to say if it's more challenging or, or easier. But I would definitely say the interest in healthcare. Um, per se, and then also in investors in healthcare has um, significantly increased in the last five years, also from our industry side.
1: And because you're unique in this aspect, we keep on talking about um, there's not too many firms at that late stage and that industry focus, especially in Europe, let alone the doc region. Um, For what you can share, I was just thinking about this like there's few acquirers in med tech, like we were talking about before, if there's very few or maybe even one like SHS firms that are able to satiate that style, that late stage aspect of funding for companies in a way, and I'm trying to choose my words here carefully, but in a way, do you almost kind of control that market? I mean, if, if, if you're at that late stage and you have very few people or very few companies at that particular level, when a company needs someone like an SHS to help them get to that growth stage or get to that PE turnaround stage, and their options are few, is is it kind of like, okay, we're going to SHS. I mean, they're they're the ones in Europe, we know them. Um, There's not really many others out there. We know that they know the space. It is what it is. We gotta go to SHS. Is, Is it that, do you guys feel that good power, if you will? Uh, It would be great to
2: feel the power uh, after all. (laughs) Um, No, but I would say that's maybe that was the case maybe more a couple of years ago that um, there was even less um, opportunity for any, let's say, Dach region company uh, when they were looking at a a certain size, um, when they were looking for an investor to grow their business. Then it was rather us. Maybe a sector-agnostic um, investor, but then they needed to have a certain threshold and need to, typically needed to be cash flow positive. Uh, so yes, it was rather than um, looking for us as investing to to support their growth plans or not growing that strongly and needing to turn into cash flow positivity on a lower lower scale. That was probably a couple of years ago. Nowadays, I would say yes, there is. Um, uh, also, also investors, uh, specialists in our field, small cap investors, trying to get into the German-speaking uh, countries as well. So yes, there is some competition, but still limited. And I would say still the, especially for smaller, very strong-growing uh, companies that are so innovative that they are a bit difficult to apprehend for a typical tech agnostic investor. It's still the major decision is still. Do we want to go with SHS as investor uh, being Germany-based or would we uh, like to not expand that quickly and rather take it a bit slower step by step? So yes, I mean, that's probably still the case for many of our investment cases, so where the decision is.
1: And then on the assessment side, when you're looking at a company, I talk about this question a lot about the timing of investment. So from the time that you get in contact with a company or someone asks you to syndicate, and you're now doing due diligence on this company, from the time that that starts to the time that SHS's money hits that bank account of whatever investment that you're going to go into, that due diligence process, is there, because it's already an objective business, meaning there's revenue generation, There's no ambiguities anymore. They clearly have a product like with early stage innovation. It's about, I mean, it's always about the people, but early stage innovation, it's like, okay, do we trust this person to get this company as far as we possibly can at minimum to the next milestone? We have to clinically test it. We have to do um, R&D. We have to go through the regulatory process. By the time a company makes it to you, they've done all that technical stuff. And now they're generating revenue. It's this objective business. Does it make the due diligence process for you easier, shorter? Is it more black and white because you either can invest in the company or you can't because it just doesn't make sense from a numerical perspective? Because on that early stage stuff, it's much more gray and dependent on, I mean, the valuations aren't very clear, all that kind of stuff. So talk about that due diligence process that you conduct. And typically speaking, how long does it take for you to close from start to finish yeah i wouldn't say there's there's that
2: much of a difference in terms of the timing perspectives uh from first first meeting to to money on the on the bank account um it, at least it doesn't have to be uh it can be depending very much again on on the speed on, on both sides and the appetite on both sides how to or pragmatic both parties are i would say it's a bit easier on some aspects as you said i mean we don't necessarily need to Extremely deep if if the science is going to work, because that's proven. Uh, On the other hand, what we are doing a lot then is uh, we need to find out from the reference customers, uh, users, potential customers, um, how they perceive the product uh, on the market after whatever uh, time of use, also from former customers, why they stopped using it. Uh, We need to apprehend and understand how to expand that product all over Europe. Uh, very quickly, how quickly is it possible and doable? Um, and then also how to get it to the States and China. So then again, we need to understand how to get to reimbursement, uh, how how big and, and what type of clinical trial is needed. Is it actually the way forward? Is it going to both um, geographies as one, at once or just one after the other or not at all, possibly? Um, so yes, I would say typical timing is um, between, well, the typical average timing between Three and a half and and five months uh, from very first outreach until the money is really on the bank account, but it can go way faster. We have done it in six weeks uh, from day from very first call up until the money is on the hits the bank account. And then again, you have to you have to see that the difference. I would say for an early stage seed investor is there's not much after all you can really uh, do deal on. I mean, especially also not in comparison to the amount you invest in the first instance, maybe. I mean, if you're investing, let's say for a seed investment, 200K or 500K, you can spend 150K on your deal costs. Doesn't make sense. Uh, you have to you have to do some, some red flag DDs on IP, maybe. Uh, you have to understand uh, the, pro- the potential products uh, and then the team, the team and the team. Uh, and for us, yes, the team is crucial as well because you're basically marrying to these uh, folks. Or at least you're you in a long-term relationship with those folks. Um, but then again, we need to understand what competition is as of today, what are newcomers to the market very soon, and we're deploying way more capital in all likelihood. And, and therefore, yes, I mean, we have a lot to do in due no worries. <laughs> <laughs>
1: I'll leave off with this final question. We talked about a lot of different things. The, the effects of EU MDRs, the fact that China is now coming out as a player for um Potential acquisitions. We talked about LP. We talked about a lot of this global stage and late stage companies that you play within. As a late stage company looking at healthcare and life sciences, what are you excited about looking forward to the future? I mean, what big opportunities are you seeing as SHS? I mean, whether it's collaborating with other countries and net capital, whether it's new regulations affecting opportunities that's going to affect your business for the positive, what are you excited about? At a very very high level.
2: Now I would say what we have seen during the COVID crisis, as bad as it was and is, um, is that that everyone <laughs> I would say everyone uh, really understands the um, the value um, of of good health after all, and of a good healthcare system as well, and that puts healthcare in general into the spotlight not only and i think not only today but probably for the foreseeable future um if you if you're asking uh, young people what what they actually want to what what type of job they want to go into probably the number of people who want to start in healthcare has probably um quadrupled or whatever um, it's, it's way way more than before it's way more in the spotlight and i think that's very well it's a good development per se, not necessarily due to COVID, but per se that you that you put first things first, which is health, um, and that also that a uh, uh, good healthcare system also still needs to be needs to be payable, and that needs innovation, uh, innovative processes, innovative products, um, and so on, and that is something that, that we see as being a great uh, a great development, uh, not only for us but actually for society as a whole.
1: Sasha Alelovich, Managing Partner of SHS. Thank you very much for your time, for all of your insights. This was very insightful for me, at least. I hope it was for the listeners too. But we talked about a global stage, a very unique aspect of late stage growth and private equity within Europe, which we haven't done before. And obviously to your point, there's not many of you. So glad to have you on this particular podcast, but this is MedTech Money, where we demystify raising and investing capital. Thank you so much, Sasa. Thanks, Johanny. It was big fun. Thank
0: you. Thank you for listening to the podcast. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe and leave a review. If you need anything from the podcast, you can always contact us at infoprojectmedtech.com. At Thanks for listening and have a great day.